That was cute. Thanks to uh, Jordan and Cassie who aren't here, but that's their work. So congratulate them and thank them when you see them next. Hey, well, welcome to Advent and welcome to the transit. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew. We're going to be in the first chapter, verses 18 through 25. We're going to look really closely at um, around 21 through 23 for today. Uh, we have Bibles underneath the middle aisle of seats. You are welcome to use those and Take them with you as a gift from us. Matthew is on about page 523 in the Pew Bible. So when I see you all stop turning and all that stuff, we'll go ahead and read together. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 is where we'll be for today. Let's read together. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, Matthew's rendition of the birth of Jesus and the implications that that has for for his world, for our world today and for really the future from here on out. We thank you for the gathering of your church today. For those who are here, uh, Lord, we lift up those who are still traveling uh, because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Just pray your uh, mercy and your grace upon them as they go from wherever they are back to uh, Northern Virginia. Lord, we're thankful to be among those churches here in Kingstown and in this area who right now are meeting, who are singing and worshiping in in, uh, response to what God has done in our lives. We thank you today for for Jesus and for his gospel going forth, Lord, and we pray for our time together that uh, this is a familiar passage of scripture. We've met it, read it many of times as part of your gospel. Today, Lord God, we look at, at a new light in Uh, in the sense of the advent of the coming of Jesus. And so, God, would you show us something that we have yet to see? Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us today? And I pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen. I was in Starbucks this week. I don't go to Starbucks a lot, but, you know, Starbucks has all kind of liquid goodness. And uh, on this particular occasion, I opened the door and, like, I was bombarded. It's like as soon as I came in the door, I had that smell of roasted coffee beans just going. And, you know, uh, Starbucks has this ambiance to it. And so you just look around as people sitting down, groups of people, sometimes individuals. And in this uh, this particular Starbucks, um, they had, you know, Christmas decorations up. Uh, Star, uh, what do you call them? Not stars. I don't know. Snowflakes on the windows. They had all these little accoutrements and decorations up. I mean, they had transformed the room to, to have the smell that you love about Starbucks, but also to have the look 
of this season of Christmas. And then I get to the counter and you see them making the liquid goodness and they're putting it in this bright red cup. And I tell you, there's nothing that says Christmas like a Starbucks red cup with snowflakes on it. Isn't that right? I mean, isn't that one of the <laughs> isn't that one of the signs of Christmas for us in our culture today? Uh, I think those those um, no mistaking, mistaking it um, in our city, in our culture, you know, the, around this time of year, you know, sometimes before Thanksgiving, but definitely after immediately we see lights going up in windows and in people's yards and inside their homes. And you walk in the stores and you hear the music's the music of the sound of the season. And oftentimes it's not just your your secular, you know, kinds of, of, of music. It's, it's the music that's giving honor to our Savior, the reason for this season. Um, You can look at our cultural celebrations of Christmas in one of two ways. Either you can, you know, you can be a little perturbed about the commercialization of Christmas and and just get mad. I mean, Jesus should be the reason for the season. We're we're supposed to be celebrating why he came. Or, you know, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. There is some commercialization of Christmas, a lot of commercialization of Christmas. Think about Black Fridays. That's just craziness right there. But on the other side, we can just rejoice that the whole world stops and for a whole month or parts of it celebrates the coming of of the Christ. Okay, and that I mean, they may not know that they're celebrating that, but that really is what they're celebrating. They're celebrating the arrival of God in to the world. And that is really a good thing. And in that we can rejoice and we can play along with it. We can Um, let the world know what they might not even know, that they need a savior. And that savior has come in the form of a baby, grew up to die on a cross for their sins. That is an opportunity that we have at Christmas time that we don't have many other times during the year. You know, interestingly, Christians throughout the ages have not just celebrated Christmas uh, on one day of the year, December 25th, but they have taken a month long celebration where they celebrate not just Jesus born in a manger, but the God who came and who, with his own words and prophesied in scripture from other words, uh, has told us that he'll come again. And that is the celebration of Advent. We are doing that right now. You see, if we've lit in a candle. First time we've had a candle lit in one of our services here. I hope it lasts throughout the whole service. Um, Advent. It means uh, in the Latin, Adventus, uh, coming uh, or coming again. And what we are doing here, Advent is a distinct observance, a recognition that God has come in the flesh to be amongst his people. But not only that, that he'll come again. Uh, Not all churches celebrate Advent. Perhaps you have grown up all your life going to church and never celebrated Advent. That really had been the the case of, of my life growing up in a traditional black Baptist church for all the days of my life. Had never even heard the word Advent. And so for some of you, this may be a first. And what we're trying to do as we as a church family celebrate Advent is to pause and to not necessarily dismiss ourselves from the commercialization of of Christmas, because that really is a part of our culture. And I I don't know, you're a part of the culture. So just be a part of that um, and just inject Jesus into it. But what we are doing is we're pausing um, and throughout the busyness that Christmas and Christmas time can often be is we're helping ourselves through small acts of of service, of worship and remembrance 
to, um, to, to put the focus back on what Christmas really means, that Jesus has come and he's coming again. And so for those of you who this is your first time celebrating Advent, we really will focus uh, in four weeks on these three things, on these four things. The first is today uh, our candle represent, represents the prophecies that have um, foretold the coming of Jesus. And the, the focus of our talk today will be on hope, the hope of Jesus. Next week, we'll look at another candle representing Bethlehem, the insignificant town of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And we'll look at the humility of that town and the humility of the baby born there. In the third week, we'll look at the shepherd's candle. Have you ever noticed the shepherds and what they did regarding the birth of Jesus? We'll light a candle in their honor and we'll talk about joy, the joy that they expressed at seeing the Christ child. And in the fourth week, uh, we'll talk about the angels. That's going to be a pretty cool sermon. The angels. And we'll light a candle in their honor and we'll talk about peace, the peace that comes with this baby born in a manger. You know, there really are two things our text today is focusing us on. The first is the background of Jesus' birth. Um, the word there, birth, is, is an interesting word. It's the word Genesis. Okay, so Matthew in his gospel is not just telling us about, you know, the singular act where a woman gives birth to a baby, but he's telling us about all that encompasses the Genesis, the origin of God coming into our world. And I would tell you, this is no typical story. I mean, you've read it. You just heard the words and just reflect on all that's going on in this passage. This isn't the typical um, man likes and loves a woman, asks her to marry him and the two get married and they live happily ever after. There's some complicated circumstances here. And we read these in the text. Immediately we learn that Mary is pregnant out of wedlock. And I mean, Think about that. OK, perhaps some of some of you have been pregnant out of wedlock. What did what did those circumstances bring for you in your life? Now, take that and go back 2000 or more years into a, a setting where that was not very common and very much looked upon. So much so um, when a man engaged a woman there, they were said to be betrothed. That's the word that's used here. Betrothed means it's almost they were they were like they were married. They were doing everything except living in a house together and contending as man and woman. And so Joseph and Mary were betrothed to get married. And when you were engaged in those in, in these days, you did not separate. You didn't divorce. And so to find that his betrothed was with with child was a huge event going on in Joseph's life. He could have gotten rid of her. Uh, the, the penalty in the Old Testament, Testament for uh, becoming pregnant out of wedlock was to die a death by stoning. You ever, I mean, anybody ever threw a rock at you and it hit you? That can hurt. How about somebody trying to stone you to death? That's really what's, what's going on here. And, but Joseph, being an upright man, decides that he's not going to have his engaged um, this engaged woman in his life, Stone, he's going to get some witnesses and quietly put her away, quietly separate himself, uh, himself from her. At least that what he, that's what he planned to do until an angel visits him um, at night in a dream. Verse 20 says, but as he considered these things, considered the things that the angel said to him, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, can you imagine Joseph's predicament? Can you imagine 
um, what his family would have said to him. If he's upright, then his family would have been upright. They would have gotten to know Mary, liked her to some degree, and to find out that she's, she's pregnant. When verse 18 says that Mary was found to be with child, it means that she was already showing. I mean, the baby is like, she's got a little pouch. Is that what your women call it? I don't know what the women call it. What do you say? A bump? She's got a bump, okay? She's probably in her second semester. I probably shouldn't have said that, right? Well, that, that, I, men don't talk like that. I, that. I had to ask. She's pregnant. She's showing, okay? And, I mean, it's, it's like walking, walking in a mall, and sometimes you can notice a pregnant woman. It, the baby was, was protruding a little bit. Can you imagine not just Joseph's family being upright, what they would have thought of him, but think about... Uh, The weight that Mary was carrying as she knew that something of God had happened to her. But how do you articulate that to people who have no idea of what she had experienced um, with the angel visiting her and her, you know, Lord, be it unto me as as you've said. Think about her neighbors. I mean, neighbors are I mean, neighbors can be downright nasty and mean when stuff like that happens, can't they? And they can spread rumors and all that stuff. And that likely was happening in the likes of Joseph and Mary's life. Who knows at what, at what point Mary decides to go to Joseph and say, sweetie, this is going to be hard for you to, to, to take, but I'm pregnant. And it's not by another man. It's by the Holy Spirit. It's like, what in the world? It must have taken great faith for Mary to receive this gift that the Holy Spirit had given her, but also great faith for Joseph to take all of this into account. Know that, I mean, this is either a miracle or I'm a sucker. Okay, and to and to let God work in his life and his circumstance in that way. The second thing I think that this text focuses on is the, is a promise fulfilled. And since today we're focusing on the prophecy candle, I want to hone us in on this idea of prophecy and hope. Those really are the things that I think are pertinent to us today as we begin our Advent celebration. Prophecy and hope, the foretelling of, of the Christ child coming into the world and what that means for us. So the first thing that we want to look at is the birth of Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. There's two kinds of prophecies in, in the Bible, two kinds of prophecies in Scripture. The first is foretelling. The second is forthtelling. Let's start with forthtelling. As the compound word suggests, forthtelling is telling, telling forth. It is speaking something out. The prophet would get a word from God and he would simply tell that thing that he saw or sense in his spirit that God was saying. And I would tell you, the majority of the prophecy in the Bible is forthtelling. A prophet getting something from God and just telling the people right then and there what God has said. Thus saith the Lord. The other kind of prophecy is foretelling. And foretelling is, is predicting the future. And anytime you see foretelling in scripture, there's a little bit of foretelling. There's, you know, it's, it's interspersed throughout the Throughout the Bible, most of the time when we see foretelling, the predicting, predicting of future events in Scripture, it's oriented toward the, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. Let's dig a little bit deeper in this idea of foretelling. Two things in regards to that. When a foretelling prophecy is spoken about in Scripture, it's always connected to real people in real times at whatever point the prophet is speaking it. OK, so we're going to look at a passage in a second. The passage that 
Matthew in his gospel was referring to. And we're going to see that this passage not only foretold of Jesus being born into the world of a virgin, but it's going to point to some things that were going on in Isaiah's day when he actually delivered those words. The second thing in regards to foretelling is it tends to the prophet tends to see only snapshots of of what he is getting from God at a time. He sees isolated pictures. We uh, some people call them prophecy peaks. Peak as in not I'm, I'm looking into a window and seeing something, but peak as in a mountain. Ever notice from a far off distance, you can see you can see a mountain from a long ways away. And so this foretelling is our opposite opportunity to peek into what God is going to bring about in the future from a long way away. But anything about it is the closer you get, the more clarity you see in what has been said. And we'll see that in this Isaiah passage. We uh, there's, there's a foretelling of something that's going to happen. And the closer we get to it, we understand what it means. And that, that's what Matthew is bringing out. So what we read in the Gospel of Matthew is a prophecy peak from the book of Isaiah. And in a nutshell, Matthew, Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, the tax collector, he's a Jew and he's trying to convince other Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And so over 10 times, Matthew reaches back into the Old Testament and he he pulls passages that foretell of the of Jesus and all that he would do to come and save people from their sins. And this is one particular one, probably one of the most prominent in all of Scripture. So Matthew looks back to Isaiah 7 and the surrounding circumstances and the context. And he says the coming of Jesus, born as a baby to a virgin named Mary, is the direct fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture as foretold in Isaiah. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, for this prophetic statement to make sense, we've got to go back into Isaiah's day and sort of unpack a little bit about what he was talking about. And so imagine yourself in 735 B.C., King Ahaz has just been crowned the king of the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. He's a fairly new king. He is just beginning to reign. And I would tell you, if you look in other places of the Bible, specifically 2 Chronicles 28, we learn that King Ahaz is a bad king. He's idolatrous, idolatrous to the point that he worships other gods, not the God of the Bible, not the God of his fathers. He is so idolatrous that he... Um, sacrifices his own sons um, to, the, the, to the gods of other nations that he doesn't want to be subject to. We find out that he takes the gold of the temple, the precious metal of the temple, and gives it away to foreign nations that they might not come and attack him and make, him, uh, make their nation subject to him. There's something going on in 735 B.C., and Isaiah is in the midst of it. It, 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 it happens that Two nations, Syria and the northern tribes of Israel, are making an alliance together because because of Assyria. Assyria is the biggest, baddest nation on the earth at this time. And Assyria is, you know, by the providence of God, going through and just sucking up nations. He's beating them, defeating them and making them serve them. 
And in this particular, uh, particular instance, Syria and the northern tribes of Israel decide they're going to get ahead of Assyria. They're going to form an alliance. But as they look at it, they don't have enough people and enough strength to defeat Assyria. And so they go knocking on King Asa of Judah's door. And, they, and really, when I say knock on the door, they go and fight him and say, hey, we're going to defeat you unless you come and help us defeat Assyria. And then in the midst of this, here comes Isaiah. And in chapter 7 of, um, of Isaiah, Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and basically says to him, all right, calm down. I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want you to sweat this at all. God has sent me to talk to you about the situation of Syria and uh, Israel coming at you and also about Assyria. And all he wants you to do is trust him. And so guess what Ahaz does? Ahaz says, I don't, I don't want God to talk to me. And I don't want to do what he says. And so, you know, this is a, like a tit for tat kind of thing with Isaiah speaking for God with Ahaz. And so in verse 10, um, find, find my notes. I'm ahead of myself. In verse 10, basically, uh, Isaiah then encourages Ahaz. It's really OK. In fact, God says you can ask him for a sign. Ask God for a sign of a deliverance that's going to come from God on your behalf and he'll give it to you. And then Ahaz says, I don't want God's sign. In fact, he says, I will not even ask God for a sign. I don't want help from this God. Two verses down, we have this famous verse, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So you see what just happened? Ahaz is rejecting help from God, the help that he really needs. And so much so, God has sent Isaiah to convince him, you might not even want a sign, but God's going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign that God gives him are these words saying, a virgin is going to have, have a child, and his name is going to be called Emmanuel. Now, Christian interpretation of these verses would take us all day and into through Christmas to unfold um, the disagreement that that scholars have in regards to the the local and the future fulfillment of this. I would tell you that there's disagreement as to even whether a virgin in Old Testament times can have a child. Okay, think about that. I mean, how would that happen? Can it happen today? In vitro, test tube babies, absolutely. Test uh, uh, technology today might allow a virgin to have a, chi- a, a child. 2,000 years, you know, 4,000 years ago, absolutely not. So um, we're not going to get, we're not going to resolve much of the issue of that particular statement about a virgin with child in that particular time. But as I said, a foretold prophecy usually has a real world present meaning, but it also speaks to the future. And, and in this case, it actually does. Firstly, Um, Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What we just witnessed is King Ahaz failed to listen to God and therefore heed his heed his advice. And what we see throughout all of the Bible is that God intervenes. God initiates even when we even when human failure um, at his at his jesting would suggest that we listen to him and do what he says. Adam and Eve did that in the garden. 
We see the kings of Israel joining it right here. We do that today. We, we have God's word. We know what he says. And oftentimes, we just choose to refuse to listen to him. And that really is happening here. God is taking the initiative to, to break into our lives, to break into Ahaz's life and deliver him, even when he hasn't asked for that deliverance to come. The second thing is this phrase, a virgin shall give birth. You know, we put a lot of attention on this, on this passage. I'm not going to resolve what the, what the scholars say in regards to the local meaning of this, but I would tell you, um, you know, Isaiah has a son. His, his wife dies. He has another wife. And that, that's what many put together uh, that Isaiah is saying. A virgin, a woman who has not had a child ends up having a child, and that child ends up being um, a savior of, of the world. In this case, that, um, that child ends up being a, a good king, Hezekiah. Okay, Hezekiah is the, is the child that's born from Ahaz, and Hezekiah is one of the most notable kings in all of Israel. He restores worship in the temple. Um, it, he's just a, a, a great king. That's what some suggest is going on here. The third thing is the name Emmanuel itself. Um, a lot of times we focus our attention on this miracle of a virgin giving birth, but this passage, is, it simply says the miracle is not in the, the, the woman giving birth. The miracle, the sign, is Emmanuel himself. It's God being in the midst of his people. Think about it. From Genesis until now, God has broken into our world, whether we ask for him to or not, in his grace and his love for his creation, and he's made himself known. He has made himself to be with us. And this is what we see really in this passage. Isaiah is prophesying that God in the midst of Ahaz's defiance and his sin and his idolatry is offering to be amongst his people, God with us. And I think that's pretty neat. You know, when we fast forward in Isaiah, this, this scenario where two nations are forming an alliance to go against Assyria and they're trying to make Judah and Ahaz go with them. It doesn't resolve itself until Isaiah chapter 9. Of course, Isaiah as a prophet is only giving us snapshots of actually what's going on. In verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9, Scripture zeroes in on this Emmanuel who was to come. And in Isaiah 9, God announces this, a child will be born. He will be a son He'll have many names to include Emmanuel, but not just Emmanuel. He'll be a wonderful counselor. He'll be a mighty God, an everlasting father. He'll be the prince of peace. He'll be born in the line of David, and he'll reign as king forevermore. Sound familiar? You've heard these words before oftentimes at Christmas. And this is pointing to none other than the Emmanuel of Matthew chapter 1. That's the same Emmanuel. So I mean, what's the point of all this prophecy? I would tell you, in our lives, prophecy is phenomenal. It's a phenomenon that, you know, sometimes we can get our hands around it. Sometimes we can't. But in a nutshell, it, it is amazing. But prophecy always points to something that's more amazing. It always points to Jesus. It points to um, Jesus and his coming. And so we have to put prophecy um, really in its proper place. There's a lot of, there's a ton of prophetic things in Scripture all throughout the Bible. There's 17 
books of nothing but prophecy. Also interspersed throughout all the other books in the Old Testament are, are snapshots of prophetic statements that all give uh, that they all lean toward the coming of the Messiah in Genesis. There's, you know, in Genesis, God creates this perfect world and he puts a man in the, the center of this creation, this perfect creation. And he simply tells the man, obey my word. We know that Adam failed. But the prophetic message of Genesis is it's not just that God created perfection and put man in the center of it. The prophetic message of Genesis is the foretelling of a new and a better Adam. We have the picture in the book of Exodus of of God sending a man, a leader to uh, deliver a nation out of out of slavery and bondage. The prophetic message of 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 Egypt, uh, um, that story of Egypt is that God is going to send us a liverer to deliver us today from our sin. When you look at the Levitical books, Leviticus, um, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we, we focus in on the sacrifices and the fact that God, because of our sin, um, he requires us to have a priest as a mediator between him and us. And the sacrifices are used to appease the wrath of God. But the Levitical books all point prophetically to, to Jesus, who will be both the priest and the mediator, and he'll be the sacrifice, and he'll forgive us for our sins forever. In Judges, I mean, I could, keep, I could go on and on and on. All the prophecy in Scripture is pointing not to the prophecy itself, although it's phenomenal. The prophecies are pointing in the, into the one who is to come. The prophecies and the promises that they point to are the Messiah to come into the world, who is God, who is also a man, who is wise and a strong king. These books and prophecies foretell of Jesus coming into our world. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we need to talk about, this is our last point, is wh- I mean, why it gives us hope. We've talked about prophecy. Um, why does the announcement of the birth of Jesus give us hope? Why should it give us hope? You know, hope is a positive word. It, it means that something good has happened is going to happen. Hope is a future positive outcome you look forward to. I'm going to say that again. Hope is a future positive outcome that you look forward to. To have hope implies that something may have gone not quite so right, and you, you sort of want something to happen to make up for that. When we want, when we, when we cry out for hope, it means that, you know, Life kind of is, is tough right now and we need deliverance. We need something outside of ourselves to come and help us. Many of us live our lives without hope and to live life without hope is to live a life of despair. And so as we look back to Joseph and Mary, think about their situation again. A couple that's betrothed, a woman that's pregnant out of wedlock and the whole world of, of, of their little existence looking in and wondering what in the world is going on. And Joseph and Mary wondering that same thing. I think like Joseph, we need hope in those situations where we find ourselves in a tough spot and we don't know what to do. And that really is what this 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 passage of scripture is pointing us to. Sometimes in our life we have just dark and grim days, and our lives cry out for hope. Here's some examples. Um, I've been deployed four times. 
I spent four and a half of my years of life in Iraq. And I would say I didn't feel hopeless in end. I mean, we have the biggest, baddest army in the world. I, there, there's not a single time that when I was deployed, I felt hopeless. Okay, I always knew that we could kick the butts of whoever we were, we were going up against. However, the very last time I was deployed, my wife was pregnant. She was with child by me, <laughs> not by the Holy Spirit. And uh, um, I left when she was like seven or eight months pregnant. Um, so she was showing. The bump was out there. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, all of our births have been through cesarean. We scheduled it. We knew it was going to happen. The other two, you know, it's, it's kind of a, I, they're just, I don't know. If you've been through it, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so Larissa gives birth to Zoe, and she develops preeclampsia right after that. And she calls me on the phone just sobbing, and she says, they're going to put me back in the hospital, and they're not going to let Zoe come with me. And so I'm on this phone, and, you know, with technology today, the, the, you know, a woman giving birth by cesarean, there's hope in that. Even um, helping my wife with preeclampsia, that's, that's hope in that. That's, she can get help from medical technology. But me being in Iraq, half a world away, and my wife being on the other end of the phone crying, and there's nothing I can do to reach through the phone and get to her and, and come to her aid, it rendered me hopeless. And I just cried my eyes out because I had nothing I could do. I felt hopeless. I wasn't hopeless from the perspective of I'm in Iraq and there's an army, you know, against us. I'm hopeless because I can't do the thing that I have nothing. There's nothing in my power to do what I want to do to help my wife. Um, two months ago, uh, we had a Navy bombing at the Navy Yard, you know, just a crazy guy coming in and shooting people up. And we had a member of our congregation right in the mix of that. One wall separated between him and this shooter that's just spraying stuff all over the place. And as this church member um, just related to me what was going on, he felt hopeless. No one in the headquarters, they, had, they didn't have any weapons. This guy that was shooting on a rampage is the only one that had weapons. Absolutely hopeless. Nothing that he could do to save himself. A month and a half ago, we had a government shutdown. And in the midst of that, some of y'all lost your job for a few weeks. And, you know, losing your job for a few weeks means you don't get paid for a few weeks. And there's nothing that some of you could have done to solve that governmental problem with those high-paid congressmen and senators, you know, 20 minutes from here. Um, in community group, every week, I am always reminded of, you know, as we pray and just listen to each other talk about that, we live in a world that's without hope. We have relatives and people that we know that are in hospitals that are sick and that in some cases are dying. We have neighbors that are going just through the trials and the, the, the hardship of life. And sometimes there's nothing that we can do to come and solve their problems. I think if we would check our own hearts then what we find in our own hearts is oftentimes we live with dishonesty and distrust and, and discouragement. And all those D words, they, they are signs of a lack of hope, of, of despair. You know, the Bible is no stranger to suffering and, and its hardship. The Bible is aware of the difficult things in life that, um, that we experience, the suffering that we have, that we face all the time. I think the Bible and the, the God of the Bible um, address those issues. It addresses our despair and points us to hope. I like what Paul says 
Actually, actually, this is not the part that I like, but it's interesting that Paul says this. And I think it, um, it will help us if you, if, you let, if you just listen to it and let it minister to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8. For we do not want you to, uh, to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were utterly, uh, utterly burdened beyond our strength that we, uh, that we despaired of life itself. I sort of murdered that verse. Um, Paul is, he's, he's getting into our world and he's um, explaining to us a situation where he didn't have hope. Think about this. Apostle Paul, the greatest apostle, um, you know, probably one of the most spiritual men other than Jesus that walked the face of the earth. There's a circumstance in his life where he was trying to spread the gospel, where he was in despair. He had no hope for his life, no hope for the situation that God put us, put him in. And I think that really is the same place that that King Ahaz found himself but didn't want to admit it. And so the prophecy in Isaiah was rooted in God prompting a king to admit that he needed a savior. Ahaz needed a savior. He needed God's deliverance. He just chose not to receive it. His response was, I won't ask for a sign from God. I don't want him to give me a sign. I don't need help from God. Ahaz was in a dark situation. He was in a no-hope-like situation. Then comes God's word. The Lord himself will give you a sign of hope. The promise of a virgin-born, a virgin son will be born, who will lead not only your government, but the governments of the world into, into deliverance. And it won't just be this momentary deliverance. It'll be deliverance forevermore. And God gives God gives Ahaz hope when he doesn't even ask for it. And so I'll just tell you, the, the, I mean, we don't get it here in this passage, but guess, guess what? Despite Ahaz saying he did not want God's help, God delivers Judah. He delivers them from Assyria. He delivers them from the northern king of Israel. He delivers them from, from Syria. Hope for Joseph and Mary also comes in the form of a word from the Lord. An angel simply reveals to them a name, Jesus Emmanuel. A name prophesied some 700 years through Isaiah, and he gives it a sign. But let me go back to, to Paul's words, because if we just listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and, say, and, and listen to Paul saying, you know what, it was a time when I was in Asia, I was spreading the gospel, and I was in utter despair, then we'll lose hope. But this is what Paul says in verse 9 and 10. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You know, oftentimes God allows situations in our life where we are in despair, where it seems like there's no hope, so that we'll get our eyes off of our circumstance and we'll put our eyes on him, the God of hope. And that really is what Matthew is pointing to. Verse 21, but she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 23, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, what hope is there in a name? Jesus means salvation, savior. Salvation is, is from God. His name tells us why he came. Jesus came to save us from our sins. You know, our tendency always is to look inside of ourselves for, for answers to life's problems. 
And then when those problems come, we look we look inside of ourselves again to find the answer to get us out of those problems. And what we find really through the experience of life is that there's no way that we can get us out of some of the situations in our lives in and of ourselves. There's no way that we can save ourselves. You know, all strife and suffering that we experience in our life comes from the sin that's in us. Sin starts in our hearts and it spreads to all the other experiences that we have in our life. We have sin in our world because sin started in the heart of a man. And that was thousands of years ago. And we really are no different than Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin starts in our heart and affects everything on the outside. James 4 says this. It says the source of our crawls and our fights and passions are there within us. There's a war going on within all of us. Ultimately, our hearts are the problem. And it's not something that we, in our own strength, are able to fix. So what hope is there in a name? And I say the answer is Jesus, because Jesus is not just a name. Jesus is a person, a person that existed in eternity, that in this passage we find he was incarnated, made into flesh. He lived a life amongst us. And then by God's plan, he went to a cross and died a death in our place for our sin. Jesus comes and dies to address the sin issues of our heart, all those things in us that we have no way to fix. And that really is the good news of Christmas. You know, the second um, name in this text is the word Emmanuel. And this is where I want to sort of conclude with today. Emmanuel means God with us. I've said that a couple times. You know, the name Emmanuel is found in three places in the Bible. We, we already read it in Isaiah 7, 14. If we would fast forward one chapter to Isaiah 8, um, Isaiah says these words. He says, God is Emmanuel, God with us. His outspread wings protect the land. That's the second use of it. And the third and final time that we see this word Emmanuel used is in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. You know, Matthew's use of Emmanuel is metaphorical. He's giving us a metaphor. The baby's name was actually Jesus, okay? But his name or title was Emmanuel because it described his nature. Who was Jesus? He wasn't just a boy with a name. He was God with us. God had come in the flesh to dwell amongst man, and that is the essence of Emmanuel. You know, in, in Matthew's gospel, Emmanuel was the breaking in of God in the time. John's gospel says the word became flesh. Both of them put together. God is with us. In Isaiah, Emmanuel would have been the hope of Israel. For, for Matthew, as he is taking this passage in ancient of times, in a situation that was, that was peculiar to King Ahaz and God's deliverance for him and his nation, Matthew says, Emmanuel, God with us, is for the whole world. God has come not just for this king who's in trouble, but he's come for this whole world full of people who God loves to save us from our sins. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is not just in a name. It's in Jesus. In, you know, in the in and out economic crises of our world, our hope is in Jesus. He is God with us. 
You know, some of you in this room go in and out of war zones and you do what you do best when you deploy. But your hope is not in the might of our government or the weapons that they give you. Your hope is in Jesus, God with us. In the midst of economic trouble in your own life, financial difficulties, could I even say poverty, okay, amongst us in this room. Not just financial poverty, but poverty of heart. Our hope is in Jesus, God with us. God is with us as our Messiah. He's our good news. He is our hope for the future. He has come and he'll come again. You know, the important, the the most important question today in regards to our reflection of the prophecy candle and its message of hope is this question. What does Emmanuel mean to you? What does Emmanuel mean to you? I, I think um, you know, I'm reflecting on going back into Starbucks now. Um, it's bred in us as little kids. Christmas time just means hope. We see the lights, we see the trees, we see the presents, and I mean, it's just instant, you know, smiles on our faces, we're beaming, and the, the hope just, um, it just bombards us. You know, for some of you, um, Hope might be like the hope of a child, getting the present that you've always wanted for Christmas. For some of you, you just want economic stability for your family. For some of you, hope is a relationship that's been broken for years that's restored. And so I would ask you, what are you hoping in this Christmas? I would tell you, wherever you are in the spectrum of, of knowing Emmanuel for yourself, we all have, we all Everybody in this room, everybody in the world has the same need. We all have the same need for Emmanuel, God with us. We all need Jesus. Jesus is not just a name. Jesus is God breaking into our world to save us. He's come for you personally in your circumstance, in any experience where there's hope where you've lost your hope, and he wants to be God with you. And so we say with that, come Lord Jesus. You know, it turns out that Starbucks might usher us into the Christmas season with their popular red cups. Um, what we ultimately, ultimately need is not more Starbucks goodness, although I do love it. In fact, after the service, I might go get me an eggnog latte. <laughs> we need the hope of the prophesied Emmanuel. We need Jesus. And so... As we, as we conclude today, will you ask God for more of Jesus this Christmas? Will you let him be your Emmanuel? Will you let him fill your heart's longings? Will you say, as we sang in the song earlier, Emmanuel, God with us, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you've come, not just as a baby, but you've come in the fullness uh, and the grandeur of your glory, of your power, of your might. You come in the authority of your kingdom. You walk the earth as a man that you might identify with our frailty. You put our skin on, walked our roads, ate our food. That that almost as it was in the beginning, you might return to a place that you are with your creation. So we thank you for that. Thank you that you are a God that chooses.
to dwell amongst us. Lord, we pray that you forgive us. We, in many ways, are like Ahaz. We don't, we shy away from your word. We stiff arm your direction. We turn our backs on those opportunities that you would lean toward us and say, just ask me. Ask me for a sign and I'll give it to you. You offer us deliverance. You give us hope in our lives where there is no hope. And so, God, we pray today for all those here who find themselves in dark and grim places where they feel like there's no hope. God, I pray that you would come as Emmanuel. God, that you would be with them. Jesus, I pray that by the Spirit, you would be real in our lives this Christmas. That your candle, the light of who you are, would shine brightly in our dark hearts, Lord. And we would cry with the saints who've gone before us. Emmanuel, God with us. And with that, Lord, the cry of our heart is come. Come, Jesus. Come. Come.